Welcome to the Permaculture Podcast. Now through April 20th, 2019, I'm running the Winter to Spring fundraiser with two goals in mind. The first is to send co-host David Bilbrey back to California for Transform 19, the follow-up conference to Regen 18, so he can continue to talk with the thought leaders of regenerative business. The second is to permanently hire a sound engineer to improve the editing and audio mix of the show. Any amount will help, so give what you can. Donate online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast or by mail. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. My guest today is Tim Cron, a Canadian engineer, builder, and author of Essential Rammed Earth Construction from New Society Publishers. Tim joins me to share his thoughts and experiences with rammed earth as a natural building method. This includes the distinction between raw and stabilized rammed earth, and how rammed earth can greatly reduce the amount of cement required to build a long-lasting wall or structure. Tim also gives an estimate of the price difference between stick-built walls and professionally installed rammed earth, while acknowledging that rammed earth is a growing but still niche field. Before giving us his final thoughts, Tim and I close with a discussion of the importance of valuing our time when considering the cost of a building or other project. That by being open and honest about how long it takes us to work on something, we can share the true price of our work with others. Enjoy this conversation with Tim Cron, and I'll join you again after. Then, Tim, can you give us a bit of an introduction to yourself and how you came to be an engineer, and then we can dive into the discussion about rammed earth construction and natural building? Okay. Yeah, sure, Scott. First of all, I I consider myself uh, a recovering Mennonite. I started off in construction wanting to build things, and I got into carpentry because I wanted to do relief work for people. And I spent quite a few years in my late teens and early 20s doing that kind of thing. And when I was in some poorer parts of the world, I found that people really need clean water and they need ways to take care of their septic issues and that they needed that more than they needed certainly North American style housing, which is what I had learned how to build. And so I went back to school to become an engineer and just through a series of I don't know if they're coincidences or or what. The way things went, environmental engineering didn't open itself up to me. And at the, again, at the North American or Western urban scale, environmental engineering is pretty brute force. It really, I don't know that it's actually happening sustainably. And when I looked at it, I didn't find it, you know, welcoming. It didn't seem to me that it was going to be a way for me to, to help, you know, sustainable built environments, whether they were in less developed areas or in our, you know, North American context. But I was enjoying engineering and I met my mentor, who's now my business partner, Chris Dick. He just retired as a prof from the University of Manitoba. And he was uh, our timber design engineer and he was already involved in straw bale construction at that time. And uh, took a lot of cues from him and ended up working with him. The rammed earth part, when I finished my undergrad, I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do, whether I wanted to just saddle up to a desk and just, you know. In Canada, we have to put in uh, four years of apprenticeship time minimum before we get our professional status. So I wasn't sure I wanted to spend all of my EIT time at one place. And an opportunity came up for me to take my master's, and, and that was actually in geotechnical engineering. It was about flood control and the stability of sandbag dikes at different geometries and under different loading conditions. 
So I built, I mean, how do you, how do you make a flood? So you built a three-sided swimming pool, essentially above ground, preserved wood foundation swimming pool. And on the fourth wall, I, I had a bunch of summer students and we had some volunteers and we built different levels and geometries of sandbag dikes and used a fire hose to fill the other side and, uh, and fail them. It was a very interesting uh, thing for me. It was very practical. I'm from Winnipeg. We have massive flooding issues there, the Red River, and not much relief. It's very, very flat. So as soon as you get water, there's nowhere for it to go. And you've, you've really got to deal with it for weeks and sometimes months. I, any of your listeners who are in the Mississippi area would, would probably know what I'm talking about. Anyway, uh, at the master's level, studying geotech, especially from a really practical more or less buildings point of view, at least walls, embankments, retaining walls, that kind of thing. I came to really appreciate the core of what Rammed Earth is. Well-graded materials, compacted carefully with some kind of containment, whether that's fabric, which is, you know, you, you had an earth bag uh, episode and I, we don't need to go over that again, but that's a mechanically stabilized, discrete way of, of doing Rammed Earth. Um, if you take it up a little bit and add some stabilizer or get very, very precise with your mix, you can do it in such a way where you don't need a permanent fabric or mechanical containment. You probably are going to need some kind of chemical stabilizer, but we can talk more about that. And so then since you did those studies on dikes and sandbag retainment walls, is that what then led you further and further down this road towards rammed earth so that now you're working with it for a large portion of what you're doing as an engineer and a builder? Yeah. When I finished my master's, I went to work for building alternatives and found that there are a lot of things missing in terms of low energy, low embodied energy uh, foundations, uh, retaining systems. And, and what I learned was just right in line with that. But I wanted to, wanted to push it a little further. And I actually started a PhD which I then quit. Those were two very good decisions. Good decision to start it and a good decision to walk away. But my my advisor in that, he was, Mark West is his name, he's currently at MIT. He was pushing forward the boundaries of fabric-formed concrete. And I wanted to take that and make fabric-formed rammed earth, which was pretty much a logical step from sandbags. At least I, I saw it that way. <laughs> so I was looking at different ways to make this material. And the thing that really, really fascinated me was the notion that you could build an entire building from your site without really, you know, leaving the bounds of it. I mean, within reason, it depends on the size of your property. And it does depend on the material in your site. But in theory, especially if you bring fabrics into it, you can use virtually any, as long as it's not polluted, and you can get down below organics, you can put just about anything in a bag and make a wall out of it or a dome or a vault or all kinds of things. So that's, that's where I got to that. And then a lot of pressures in our conventional building uh, society or whatever you want to call it that, that aren't, you know, either not that open to it regulatorily wise, you know, or, or they're not, you know, clients don't, don't necessarily want to live in an earth bag house. So rammed earth, done in forms, done with chemical stabilizer, done with oxides, can be an absolutely stunning thing. Aesthetically, it's just gorgeous. And that appeals to a lot of people. It appeals to me as well. But in our environment, in both regulatory and climatic, we need stabilizer. The freeze-thaw cycles that we have in 
most of the northern states and up here in Canada demand that you have something cementitious in your mix unless you have, well, an external plaster, which then hides your beautiful red dirt, or a rain screen. I mean, I've talked that up with a lot of clients and I still haven't had any bites. As a path to do like a fully permitted raw rammed earth building in North America, a rain screen on the outside, insulation on the outside, that's, uh, to me, it's brilliant. But a lot of clients, they want the same look inside as outside. So then we, we do the technique with the interior insulation, which we can talk about later if you like. When you mention a rain screen, there was a time when I was looking at doing straw bale here in Pennsylvania. And I have a friend who's a physical engineer who I talked to about this. And she said one of the biggest things for earthen plasters and straw barrels here where I am is making sure that we have a sufficient overhang largely to keep moisture off of that wall as well as to keep it from settling into crevices. What do you mean by a rain screen? Is that just some kind of a barrier to keep the rammed earth from getting wet and being exposed to that freeze-thaw cycle? Or is there something else there that I'm missing? It's a bit of a catch-all phrase, but it's also, a, it means something in commercial construction, especially. It means that there is a weather barrier at the very outside edge of the building, and then there is a neutral pressure plane, some kind of open air space. It can have mesh in it, can be just open air. And then you have uh, your air barrier and your insulation and the rest of the building. But rather than having the very outside of the building be directly physically connected to your insulation or to whatever, like, like you would have in a straw bale wall, conventional straw bale wall with its plaster, then straw bale, and then plaster again, you would have something outboard of that outside plaster. For a straw bale wall, you could just run vertical strapping and then have siding. That would be a rain screen if if air was allowed to travel in that space between the end of the straw bale plaster and your siding, whatever it could be. It could be steel, it could be glass. That's what it usually is in commercial buildings is glass. So most, yeah, most exterior cladding systems for commercial are built as rain screens. They will drain. Well, I mean, it depends on your climate and depends on all kinds of things, but... It depends. The answer is always it depends. Thinking of it in this way, for someone who's like an owner builder or used to traditional construction, we're looking at some kind of an outside cladding, whether that's glass, siding, plaster, or anything like that. Something that disconnects that rammed earth directly from the outside environment. Yes. Yeah. And it's primarily it's there to be a drainage plane so that you can avoid having extreme overhangs. Or if you've got a two-story building, you've got a two-story walkout kind of thing. And sure, you've got good overhangs, but, you know, facing hopefully south in our continent, you know, you potentially have an 18, 20-foot wall. It doesn't really matter if it's a three-foot, four-foot overhang at the top of that wall. The bottom 12 feet of the wall is getting wet. So, again, depending on your annual precipitation and annual humidity and all of those things, you may want to consider that. And that's regardless of what wall system, like what you've got behind it. It's, uh, it's really a pretty smart way to build. And then you said that we have this ability, if we want to, with rammed earth, to be able to build on site from the materials that are there. Right. You know, we may have to import some fabric or perhaps you're saying if we need a chemical stabilizer like cement or something like that. But what are the considerations that go into selecting materials to build with rammed earth? Can we just really, you know, go dig the clay and dirt that's there or do we have to be processing this? by screening it? 
like what goes into finding, selecting, and preparing the materials for Ramder? Yeah, everyone I've worked with that has done a site build has ended up screening and adding. Um, in the one case in particular that comes to mind, they added sand from a local quarry. So, but was from within, I think it was within three kilometers, so like less than two miles away from their place. But they did a pretty reasonable excavation. And for them, that made sense. They were doing like a walkout style story and a half. So they ended up with a pretty big excavation anyway. So regardless, they were going to dig a bunch and they pretty thoroughly mixed that. And then they took samples from it. And uh, the classic jar test to determine clay, silt, sand ratios, they had pretty good idea of, of the aggregate that they had in there. That's what they had to screen for, because in their case, they had they had aggregate well over two inch diameter that they needed to get out of their mix. And then they had a little bit too much clay and silt. And so they ended up amending with some sand. It's a really good idea to do a proper grain size distribution on your soil, which more or less involves talking to either someone in agriculture or someone in geotechnical engineering who commonly does that kind of thing. It can be done at home. It's unlikely that you'll have all the right sieves, sieve sizes to, to do it yourself. But it's not an overly complicated process. It's really just running things through finer and finer sieves and weighing everything at every stage to get your percentages. And as you go through that process, what are the percentages that you're looking for for an ideal distribution of your silt, sand, and clay? So again, it does depend. It depends largely on the type of clay that you have. So I mentioned Mississippi. So if you're in Central North America and you've got gumbo kind of clays, they call it Yazoo clay down in Jackson. We just call it Red River Gumbo up in, uh, up in Winnipeg. But they're very similar. They are Montmorillonite clays. They're extremely expansive. They can expand up to three times their dry volume when fully saturated. So those kinds of clays will potentially tear themselves apart. And you really want to you really want to minimize that kind of clay in in your mix. The best clays are kaolinites. So they're the they're the kind of clays that potters use. So hopefully you can figure out. Usually just by asking around, talk to some farmers, check if are there local potters who make usable pottery from clay in your area. Like if they're making crazy crack raccoon stuff, that's ornamental pottery. But that means that when they fire that, they don't really care if it cracks and does crazy things. That's perhaps what they're looking for. But if they're making usable mugs, teapots out of clay from your area, you could definitely use that clay. So that's that's the first caveat. From there, you want to mix. I mean, ideally, you have this perfect blend of every possible size of material from the finest silts all the way up to about a three-quarter inch gravel. Because if you reach your optimum moisture content and you're, you've got good containment in your formwork and you're tamping this, it will sort itself out, fill as many voids as possible. And that's really the trick of raw rammed earth. And then you need enough clay in there that you get matrix suction on steroids, if you will. So matrix suction is like uh, capillary tension. So if you've ever built a sandcastle, which most of us have, the reason that thing stands, even though there's really no binder 
in most sand things is that you've got surface tension operating in the pores on any particle that's like less than two millimeters less. So about, you know, somewhere on just under a 16th. That's a pretty amazing thing. But your pure sand, sand castle, will not be able to withstand repeated wet dry cycle. It will just collapse as soon as it saturates again. If you've got clay in there, however, the clay has an enormous capacity to absorb, hold, and then give off moisture at various vapor pressures and temperatures and really is the trick. It's still not going to, you're not going to have an erosion proof system, but you can get a really amazing wall out of it. And if you finish it there. So get right back around to the start of the question. You want between five and 20% clay and you can intermingle that with silts, but you wouldn't want your clay silt portion to get above 35% total. And you want between 20 and 25% aggregates in the three-eighths to three-quarter inch range, and then the rest is sand. And then with that mix in those proportions, again, you know, doing some trial and error and finding out the right mix for your site based on what your clay is and the other materials, then you can just create a form and start ramming that down into a raw wall? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, if if you've got the, the room and uh, and you're willing to, you know, try again, Raw rammed earth is completely recyclable. I don't think it's upcyclable. It's not downcyclable. It's just completely reusable. And that's that's a really appealing thing. And that's sort of one of the dirty secrets of stabilized rammed earth is as soon as you've added that cement or that lime or blast furnace slag or you know whatever pozzolan kind of thing you're using as a binder, you've now meant that that thing can only ever be downcycled once it's done as a wall. The upside is that if you do it really well, that wall is going to last hundreds of years. So we talk about Roman concrete and Parthenon and stuff, and that is essentially rammed earth. They, they, used, they did damp pack, compacted Roman cement. That's how they built. And that stuff is thousands of years old and still standing. We don't see the ones that fell down, though. So it's, uh, you know... Just a reminder that we see the successes and not the failures. Exactly, exactly. We shouldn't get too carried away. But the potential is there to make very, very durable things, which also means that if you're just experimenting, maybe you want to stick with raw rammed earth for your experiments so that you can take them apart. And that gives you an opportunity then if you want to teach a weekend workshop on this or try some different things or learn from these processes that you can start with raw rammed earth, build some small structures, a garden shed, or really anything that comes to mind as a place to kind of begin working with these techniques and then tear it apart and try again before you finally add that cement or other chemical binder that would be your final form. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think a, an ideal weekend project would be the the north wall, south-facing wall of a small solar greenhouse, something that's uh, you're going to put like a 90-degree kind of hoop thing, like half a hoop facing south, and this will be your thermal mass in there, and it'll be a humidity buffer for you. Raw rammed earth is a great humidity buffer. Yeah, I think that's a that'd be a great kind of program. Or, I mean, low beds, you could use it as a way to hold a bed together. The wall's kind of thick, though. I don't know if you want to use it as a bed, but maybe, you know, a little planter. But uh, certainly retaining walls or the back wall of a either a garden shed or a potting shed or something that's I just think it's it's a it's such a great thermal mass that using it to capture sun and heat is really brilliant. If you happen to be in iron rich soil territory and you get reds, deep reds in your soil, that's going to 
just be a great thing for plants. The kind of light that's coming off of that be a wonderful atmosphere in a small greenhouse or a large greenhouse for that matter. And with the raw rammed earth, is that usable even in our northern wet climes as a kind of a load-bearing wall, or would we need to be concerned about other supports? Well, if we're sheltering it, if it's an interior wall, say on a, a greenhouse or a, or a garden shed, it can last a long, long time. It will not be erosion-proof, but it's really quite durable. I mean, certainly, if you were considering an earthen plaster on a straw bale wall, it will be more durable than that. So it's just not, I, if, if you start thinking in terms of hundreds of years, that's when you need to move into the, or if you're uh, containing, I don't know, hogs, uh, like pigs will root through anything. So, you know, you, <laughs> you need to, yeah, <laughs> consider what your, what's your design, who's your client, who's your occupant. Right, right. One of my other friends in the permaculture community, he and I often joke about wanting to build tools that will last for generations, but homes that have to be restored with every generation. Mm. And it sounds like this is that kind of a place where with raw rammed earth, we can build and move and change knowing that we're still going to be either plastering that exterior wall or putting some kind of a cladding over it, but that it does provide a solid way to build up a building or a shed or something that we might like. Just remembering that need for that rain screen, as you uh, referred to it earlier on in our conversation, that exterior barrier. But, I mean, it sounds like we could be using those same materials on site to be creating earthen plasters that do help provide that long life. Absolutely. Absolutely. The the uh, Manhattan of the desert in Yemen has been continuously occupied for hundreds of years, and it's raw round earth, over seven stories tall, and they simply have an external plaster that they reapply. I can't remember the location of it. There's a temple that's one of the largest, most ornate, anyway, rammed earth buildings in the world. That uh, there's a a festival every oh I don't think it's every year, but it's on a very regular cycle. And one of the rites of passage for males in that community is to spend one of these festivals plastering on the outside of this temple. So. I mean, that's a brilliant mix to me of, of community and material. So that every so many years, you get a total replastering done. It's always done by, you know, yeah, teenagers who have plenty of, plenty of energy. Uh, it's probably a good use of their energy. And they hopefully have a real respect for that building going forward in their lives. I think if we could bring those kinds of, of rituals and, and meaningful maintenance into our, into our lives, uh, we could do just about anything with raw rammed earth. Unfortunately, in our regulatory climate, saying good maintenance is, you know, is what durability is, that doesn't really cut it with our current building codes in North America. So, uh, I mean, I wish it did, but... Uh... Yeah, and that's one of the places where the last time I had a long conversation about this in Pennsylvania, one of the ways that many people talk about kind of skirting those kinds of issues is that timber frame is well understood. And so a timber frame as the body of a building is a perfect way to put a roof up and everything else. And then the infill for the walls can be whatever the homeowner wants. Yes. And that's where a lot of folks are kind of getting around that is because then that's where they're doing things like their rammed earth or their straw bale or like Waddle and Dob plasters and things like that is around the timber frame. Yep, absolutely. And the, depending on your jurisdiction, there may be ways to do alternative solutions proposals to accommodate uh, different materials as long as, yeah, you've taken care of the structure, now you can do whatever you like. 
or whatever is defensible. Let's put it that way. Right. (laughs) And you mentioned earlier about mechanically stabilizing with fabric, which goes back to earth bag construction and earth bags being a form of like small scale rammed earth mechanically stabilized with the bag itself. Mentioning chemically stabilized, what are the different ways to chemically stabilize rammed earth to give that hundreds of years kind of lifespan that you've mentioned? Is that just, and I use these terms interchangeably, like concrete and cement, or are there other binders that can be used to achieve the same end? Well, historically, TARS, bitumen, has been used. That doesn't really give you the same aesthetic that people really love, the the look of the, you know, almost limestone layered look. And depending on where you are, that may not be local or healthy or sustainable. Um, So these days, it really just comes down to cementitious or pozzolanic. So Portland cement is uh, is the go-to these days. It's really just lime that has been burned hotter with clay in it, so dolomitic lime. And it, it has the highest embodied energy of any of these kinds of things. The next step down is lime. So that's limestone crushed and burned, limestone that does not have clay in it, crushed and burned at a slightly lower temperature, still pretty high. And the step between those two includes... Well, we move from a a hydration cure to a carbonation cure. So when cement cures into a concrete mass, that is a very fast, very high heat producing reaction that is essentially done within the first month. Most of it's done in the first couple of hours. Lime, lime stabilized whatever, will theoretically carbonate forever. The slope of that line is getting really flat. I've heard people argue that that limes uh, are actually carbon neutral because of this ability to carbonate forever. But it, there's no free lunch. Uh, the, the amount of energy that is expended getting to the lime is more than you will ever get back in terms of carbon emissions. But it's still it's favorable compared to Portland cement. And then there are other uh, you can use fly ash from many sources, including rice hulls. You can use ground blast furnace slag from steel production. You can use calcined clays. So this is something we've been using a lot in our area because we've got a plant not too far away that makes expanded glass aggregate. So they take recycled glass, grind it up, and then they fire it in a drum cylinder, expand it, kind of like Rice Krispies. And then that is a stable, very air-filled aggregate that they'll they use in different kinds of concrete. But in order to make that process work, they need a dry lubricant in the drum, and they use kaolin clay, which is then fired at a pretty high temperature and becomes a calcined clay, which you can mix with a lime or a fly ash, and you get a posit, a low-end Roman cement type binder. And because it's a byproduct arguably you have, well, it's certainly lower embodied energy than, than either a lime or a Portland cement because you, the energy they're using to fire it is much lower. But it's also a byproduct. So depending on how you do life cycle analysis, if, if all the embodied energy went into the product and you're just getting this bonus byproduct, you can kind of, and it's sort of like carbon offsets, sort of accounting stuff. But, but nevertheless, it's a good way to amend mixes. So we've In my practice, we've been able to cut our cement, the Portland cement portion of our binder, in half by 
mixing lime and calcium clay one to one. And then that will be one part and Portland cement will be one part. And we go up to about seven or 8% in the total mix by weight of binder. And that's got us, if we're just looking at the Portland cement compared to a, a similar concrete, conventional concrete, we're at maybe 20%, 20, 15 to 20% of the cement that they would be using. So that's, that's pretty significant considering we're getting a very durable wall. We're getting strengths, strengths in the order of 15 to 20 MPA, which is over 1500 PSI. It's not trivial for one and two story residential. That's more than adequate. And so you're saying that by weight, you're only using about 7% of the weight of your entire material going into the wall is a chemical binder? Yeah. Wow. That's a lot lower than what I was expecting. Yeah. The, well, one of the big tricks is not getting the stuff wet. So Ram Earth is damp when you're working with it. And, and that's one of the prices we pay when we have conventional concrete. We're interested in pouring it, which is kind of not the right term. You sort of place it. But anyway, they get it really wet so they can pump it so that it's easy to move so that, I mean, it's just the way we work with concrete in North America. And because of the nature of Portland cement, as soon as they saturate that whole mix at the ready mix batching plant, it's already hydrating right there, right then. They're already losing strength as they're driving down the road with the drum turning. And if it takes them more than an hour to get to your site, that stuff is effectively garbage. Whereas we're, we're not providing nearly that level of moisture to our mix. And then we are mechanically compacting it to get the optimum organization, the optimum density of the mix that we've created. So we're being really, really efficient with the binder that we're putting into this material. And that's really the trick, is not, not getting it so wet. <laughs> and that small amount of chemical binder that's required, using as many resources as you can locally or on site, that's really where you're getting this embodied energy reduction within rammed earth. Well, plus you don't need all the same equipment to transport the cement or the ready-mixed concrete and all the other equipment that goes with that, you can be selecting on site using less energy intensive ways to be sorting your materials. If people want to be hand screening this, you know, building their screens on site, building with raw rammed earth. So you don't even need a chemical binder, which then is completely recyclable. I'm starting to see the ways that this material, when someone gets an interest in it and begins using it, the way that it can really lower the amount of energy that's required in order to build a building in this way while still producing something that can last a generation or many, many more. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Sort of the, the Achilles heel, or another Achilles heel, if we can have more than one, is that while it is a great thermal mass, it's not a very good insulator. So if you're in my climate up here in Canada, you really need some kind of an external insulation pair with it. But if you're in, you know, the southern states, the mass ends up really working for you in terms of, well, it depends whether your overnight temperatures get down at all, because it'll store heat, it'll store cool as well. But if you've got a good swing in temperatures, I mean, this is how the vast majority of the Southwest, Santa Fe, Taos Pueblo, they're all Adobe, which is really very, very similar in thermal characteristics to Ramder. It can be your only material, absolutely. But in the North, you got to insulate it. There's no, no getting around it. And then when you are insulating in the north, what kind of materials are you looking at for that? 
Well, the the go-to for most people is, unfortunately, polystyrene, so foam, styrofoam. I've got a number of clients that have worked with mineral wool, so uh, like a rock wool, and that can definitely work, but it takes up more space in the wall. I had a client who did a passive house rammed earth wall, and his interior structural width was eight inches wide, and then he had 15 inches of rock wool and then he had six inches on the outside of his finished veneer, the, the veneer wife, which is also rendered. So it's a 29-inch thick wall. You know, he was on a rural property, so it was okay for him. But that's most people are not interested in a wall quite that thick. There's nothing stopping you from using, to say, straw bale. That'd be a dream build for me. It would be a, a raw rammed earth interior wife, and then a straw bale wrap. And then if you chose, you could put earth on the outside, but if it was going to be your finished wall, that would then have to be stabilized. Or you could just do plaster and a rain screen or whatever you like. But uh, I have done that build with a compressed earth block with uh, a different client where the interior was compressed earth block in a circular home, and he wrapped it with bales. And that worked brilliantly. But you don't get the look of the earth on the outside in that case. He just plastered it. And this is just showing the wide variety of ways that we can achieve our building goals based on what our budget might be, what we have available, what we might be able to recycle from our local community. For somebody who wants to be an owner-builder, it sounds like we can be producing livable human structures very inexpensively with just what we have in our local environment and some skills that we can build up over a weekend Or if we want to do a really involved build in an interesting climate, being able to contact people such as yourself and really build up from there. Yeah, it's definitely, it runs a very broad spectrum of possibilities. Absolutely. Do you have any kind of ideas on the figures for a finished rammed earth home, like a price per square foot? Or is it really just all over the place, depending on the materials that someone wants to use? Yeah, it's... It's, it's re- that's a really hard one to nail down. In my experience, the wall system, if we're just going to compare walls and you're going to have a professional do it with code complying, with stabilizers, proper kinds of formwork, power tools, pneumatic tampers, uh, you're looking at 20 to 25 percent above conventional just for the walls. Do it yourself. That that changes things. Although I have a bit of a pet peeve around people sort of abusing themselves and saying that they're working for free or not counting their labor. I find that that's sort of disingenuous. I I think we should be very honest that, you know, I put this many hours in and you should value that. If you're telling somebody and you're telling them that this was cheap, if if you're talking in terms of measurement by money, which is a poor measuring tool, it's very elastic means different things to different people. But if you're going to use that metric, you should tell people how many hours you took and you should say, well, and and I personally think I'm worth, you know, maybe as a totally green rookie, maybe I'm only worth five bucks an hour. But, you know, I'm billing as a professional, I'm billing, you know, 135 an hour. So that's the value of my hour. So if I put 20 hours into something, you know, but I didn't pay anything for the materials, I shouldn't tell somebody that that was free. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just... That it bugs me that when people will tell other people that they built something for nothing, but it took them, you know, three months and maybe cost them half a marriage or something. And, you know, that didn't cost you nothing. That cost you a lot. <laughs> right. It's just a way for us to be honest about our accounting, even if we don't put a dollar figure to it. If we say that it took us a thousand hours over three years, that at least gives someone who's interested in this idea some kind of a concept of what this is like. 
and where they might be when they begin and find that that's just not something that works for them or maybe worth bringing in a professional such as yourself at the $135 an hour just to get it done quickly. Right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I think time is a, I mean, time is also a little bit elastic, but people have an idea. If you said a thousand hours over three years, people would have a pretty good idea of, of what that meant. So that's a good way to communicate. And I find it's honest. That's, I guess, the thing that bugs me about saying I did it for free when you spent every weekend for the last three years sourcing all those materials. <laughs> and it reminds me of a conversation. One of my early interviews on the show was with the architect Bob Tice, who does a lot with natural building. And one of the things that he mentioned is that in the Western world, usually labor accounts for two-thirds of a building's cost, where only a third of it is our materials because of just the access that we have to so many things. Whereas in many developing countries and elsewhere, it's two-thirds of the cost is your materials and one-third is the labor. And so having these conversations about hours and where we source things gets us to a better idea of what the actual cost is in human expenses. Yes. Yeah, we, we notoriously undervalue and overcost labor in our society. We try to find ways to mechanize as soon as we can, at least when we're doing things in the conventional economic regime. And it bugs me a lot. We don't have a lot of pride or value in craft. But anyway, we don't have to get on to it. <laughs> but uh, it's great. I, I love Bob. He's a, he's a great architect. I haven't seen him for a few years, but I've done a little bit with him California. He's, he's fantastic. Yeah. I haven't talked with him for a little while, but when you mentioned rock wool, I was like, Oh, I know exactly what that is because of Bob. Yeah. He really started the entire like natural building series for me because of how easily he made this kind of information accessible because I never felt like he was trying to sell us anything or explain anything beyond exactly what it was and what we could do. And has really opened up all of these conversations and a lot of what his feedback was about, you know, there's a piece of property out there somewhere that doesn't need us on it. So what can we do where we are to renovate what's already there? Well, well said. Yeah, I'm, that's, that's great to know. I'm, I'm honored to, to be on the same podcast that Bob was on. He's, uh, he is a gem. Yeah, very, very wise. With where we've gone so far, I really do appreciate the general conversation that we've been able to have about the different ways that we can stabilize rammed earth, the different types of forms that there are between raw and chemical and mechanical. But with everything you've shared so far, is there anything else that you'd like to leave the listeners with in your final thoughts? Yeah, the uh, do not underestimate how much formwork will flex when you are tamping. Brace, brace, brace again. I cover it in the book, but uh, the formwork is the negative of whatever it is that you're building. So, I mean, and there's an opportunity to put relief and, and do very interesting things with formwork. But as you are pressing down very hard, whether it's manually or whether it's with an air tamper, the material is pressing sideways about 20% as hard as you're pressing down. But then as you get more and more dense, it's pressing even harder because there's, there's less ability for it to absorb your energy as you make it denser. So don't think that you can underform something. And a corollary with that is don't put too much into the forms at once. Thinner lifts are better. You can get carried away, if you, especially if you've got volunteers and they want to make progress and they want to you know, get to lunch or whatever it is. Had a few cases where there were volunteer labor involved and lifts started to get too thick and then the bottom of the lift will not get compacted. You shouldn't ever put more than eight inches, I don't think, 
into certainly not if you're if you're using pneumatics maybe 10 inches but shouldn't go above that six to eight inches of loose material that then gets packed down to three to five inches is what you should be looking for and while you <laughs> you can make beautiful beautiful patterns you can you can create wave-like forms you should leave that until you're experienced if you're just starting out you should try to make things as even as possible and make your lifts as straight as possible straight horizontal line when you're done that will assure you of proper density throughout the entire length of wall that you're building. I did a presentation in India last August, and they also build a lot of uh, rammed earth, but it never occurred to them to do a curvy pattern. And when I showed them some of the, the seasonal resonances that I, some of my wealthy clients had built, they were just astonished at this look, but they were worried about what happened whenever those wavy forms tapered out to a point. And that's a legitimate thing to be worried about. If there's not enough material in there, you can't properly tamp it. It'll just sort of squirt away from your tamper. So starting out, just be nice and even, not too deep, and make sure your forms are really well braced. And for anyone who's interested in these ideas, your book, Essential Rammed Earth Construction, covers all of this and has plenty of pictures that show those differences between those perfectly arrow-straight lines as well as some of the waves and patterns and other things that you can develop. And there's just on the cover, as you were mentioning those straight lines, there's an example where I guess the wall's maybe four feet high and you can see at least 12 different layers, reinforcing that idea of how thin these layers actually are. Right. Well, Tim, thank you for joining me today and everything you've shared and everything you put into your book. I love learning more and more about these natural building techniques and the way that they're being used really in Western society and all over the world because it really makes these different methods more accessible for anyone who's interested in being an owner-builder or looking at applying these techniques on a larger, more commercial scale. So thank you for being a part of this conversation and for adding to the literature. Thank you, Scott. This has a, been a great pleasure. And that was Tim Cron. You can find his book, Essential Rammed Earth Construction, at newsociety.com or by following the link in the show notes. There you'll also find links to my earlier interviews, from the Essential series, and also those on natural building, including the conversations with Bob Tice, who we mentioned in today's episode. I'm also giving away a copy of Tim's book, Essential Rammed Earth Construction, a $40 value, at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. All you need to do to enter is leave a comment in the giveaway post. That runs from March 28th to April 8th, so leave a comment today. As Tim works full-time as a professional engineer, the best place to find his thoughts and knowledge about rammed earth are in this interview and his book. If you do have any questions for him, please forward those to me here at the show, and I can send them to Tim for a follow-up interview. What I love about natural building, which Tim reinforces in our conversation today, is the flexibility and forgiveness of the materials and techniques compared to stick-built homes. Whether stacking earth bags for a dome, filling tires for an earth ship, or ramming earth for a wall, at many steps along the way, we can put things up and tear them down again while trying different ideas and learning as we go. Though the costs may be more expensive when we account for our time, we can learn a lot about what satisfies our physical or aesthetic needs in ways that we might not be able to with other methods. By being involved in the process, we become connected to the spaces we build and what it means to inhabit a place. What do you think of natural building? What techniques and materials have you used where you are? 
I'd love to hear more about your projects and accomplishments. Call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dolphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next interview is with Kevin Jones, recorded by co-host David Bilbrey. Until the next time, consider all the natural techniques you can use to design and build the world you want to live in, while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.